Chapter Ten of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End, by E. M. Forster. Chapter Ten. Several days passed. Was Mrs. Wilcox one of the unsatisfactory people? there are many of them, who dangle intimacy and then withdraw it. They evoke our interests and affections, and keep the life of the spirit dawdling round them. Then they withdraw. When physical passion is involved, there is a definite name for such behavior—flirting. And if carried far enough, it is punishable by law. But no law—not public opinion, even—punishes those who coquette with friendship, though the dull ache that they inflict— the sense of misdirected effort and exhaustion, may be as intolerable. Was she one of these? Margaret feared so at first, for, with a Londoner's impatience, she wanted everything to be settled up immediately. She mistrusted the periods of quiet that are essential to true growth. Desiring to book Mrs. Wilcox as a friend, she pressed on the ceremony, pencil as it were in hand, pressing the more because the rest of the family were away, and the opportunity seemed favourable. But the elder woman would not be hurried. She refused to fit in with the Wickham Place set, or to reopen discussion of Helen and Paul, whom Margaret would have utilised as a shortcut. She took her time, or perhaps let time take her, and when the crisis did come, all was ready. The crisis opened with a message— would Miss Schlegel come shopping? Christmas was nearing, and Mrs. Wilcox felt behind-hand with the presents. She had taken some more days in bed, and must make up for lost time. Margaret accepted, and at eleven o'clock one cheerless morning, they started out in a brougham. First of all, began Margaret, we must make a list and tick off the people's names. My aunt always does, and this fog may thicken up at any moment. Have you any ideas? "'I thought we would go to Harrods or the Haymarket stores,' said Mrs. Wilcox, rather hopelessly. "'Everything is sure to be there. I am not a good shopper. The din is so confusing, and your aunt is quite right. One ought to make a list. Take my notebook, then, and write your own name at the top of the page.' "'Oh, hooray!' said Margaret, writing it. "'How very kind of you to start with me.' But she did not want to receive anything expensive. Their acquaintance was singular rather than intimate, and she divined that the Wilcox clan would resent any expenditure on outsiders. The more compact families do. She did not want to be thought a second Helen, who would snatch presents since she could not snatch young men, nor to be exposed like a second Aunt Julie to the insults of Charles. A certain austerity of demeanour was best, and she added— I don't really want a Yuletide gift, though. In fact, I'd rather not. Why? Because I've odd ideas about Christmas. Because I have all that money can buy. I want more people, but no more things. I should like to give you something worth your acquaintance, Miss Schlegel, in memory of your kindness to me during my lonely fortnight. It has so happened that I have been left alone— and you have stopped me from brooding. I am too apt to brood. "'If that is so,' said Margaret, 
If I have happened to be of use to you, which I didn't know, you cannot pay me back with anything tangible. I suppose not, but one would like to. Perhaps I shall think of something as we go about. Her name remained at the head of the list, but nothing was written opposite it. They drove from shop to shop. The air was white, and when they alighted it tasted like cold pennies. At times they passed through a clot of grey. Mrs. Wilcox's vitality was low that morning, and it was Margaret who decided on a horse for this little girl, a gollywog for that, for the rector's wife a copper warming-tray. "'We always give the servants money.' "'Yes, do you, yes, much easier,' replied Margaret, but felt the grotesque impact of the unseen upon the scene, and saw issuing from a forgotten manger at Bethlehem this torrent of coins and toys. Vulgarity reigned. Public houses, besides their usual exhortation against temperance reform, invited men to join our Christmas goose club, one bottle of gin, etc., or two according to subscription. A poster of a woman in tights heralded the Christmas pantomime, and little red devils, who had come in again that year, were prevalent upon the Christmas cards. Margaret was no morbid idealist. She did not wish this spate of business and self-advertisement checked. It was only the occasion of it that struck her with amazement annually. How many of these vacillating shoppers and tired shop assistants realized that it was a divine event that drew them together? She realized it, though standing outside in the matter. She was not a Christian in the accepted sense. She did not believe that God had ever worked among us as a young artisan. These people, or most of them, believed it and if pressed would affirm it in words. But the visible signs of their belief were Regent Street, or Drury Lane, a little mud displaced, a little money spent, a little food cooked, eaten, and forgotten. Inadequate. But in public who shall express the unseen adequately? It is private life that holds out the mirror to infinity. Personal intercourse, and that alone, that ever hints at a personality beyond our daily vision. "'No, I do like Christmas on the whole,' she announced. "'In its clumsy way it does approach peace and goodwill. But, oh, it is clumsier every year.' "'Is it? I am only used to country Christmases. We are usually in London, and play the game with vigour. Carols at the Abbey, clumsy midday meal, clumsy dinner for the maids, followed by Christmas tree and dancing of poor children, with songs from Helen. The drawing-room does very well for that. We put the tree in the powder-closet, and draw a curtain when the candles are lighted, and with a looking-glass behind it looks quite pretty. I wish we might have a powder-closet in our next house. Of course the tree has to be very small, and the presents don't hang on it. No, the presents reside in a sort of rocky landscape made of crumpled brown paper. You spoke of your next house, Miss Schlegel. Then are you leaving Wickham Place? Yes, in two or three years, when the lease expires. We must. Have you been there long? All our lives. You will be very sorry to leave it. I suppose so. We scarcely realise it yet. My father— she broke off, for they had reached the stationary department of the Haymarket stores, 
and Mrs. Wilcox wanted to order some private greeting cards. "'If possible, something distinctive,' she sighed. At the counter she found a friend, bent on the same errand, and conversed with her insipidly, wasting much time. "'My husband and our daughter are motoring. Bertha, too! Oh, fancy, what a coincidence!' Margaret, though not practical, could shine in such company as this. While they talked, she went through a volume of specimen cards, and submitted one for Mrs. Wilcox's inspection. Mrs. Wilcox was delighted. So original, words so sweet, she would order a hundred like that, and could never be sufficiently grateful. Then, just as the assistant was booking the order, she said, "'Do you know, I'll wait. On second thoughts, I'll wait.' There's plenty of time still, isn't there? And I shall be able to get Evie's opinion." They returned to the carriage by devious paths. When they were in, she said, "'But couldn't you get it renewed?' "'I beg your pardon?' asked Margaret. "'The lease, I mean.' "'Oh, the lease! Have you been thinking of that all the time? How very kind of you! Surely something could be done.' No, values have risen too enormously. They mean to pull down Wickham Place and build flats like yours. But how horrible! Landlords are horrible. Then she said vehemently, It is monstrous, Miss Schlegel. It isn't right. I had no idea that this was hanging over you. I do pity you from the bottom of my heart. To be parted from your house, your father's house, it oughtn't to be allowed. It is worse than dying. I would rather die than—oh, poor girls! Can what they call civilization be right if people mayn't die in the room where they were born? My dear, I am so sorry." Margaret did not know what to say. Mrs. Wilcox had been overtired by shopping, and was inclined to hysteria. Howard's End was nearly pulled down once. It would have killed me. Howard's End must be a very different house to ours. We are fond of ours, but there is nothing distinctive about it. As you saw, it is an ordinary London house. We shall easily find another." "'So you think?' "'Again my lack of experience, I suppose,' said Margaret, easing away from the subject. "'I can't say anything when you take up that line, Mrs. Wilcox. I wish I could see myself as you see me, foreshortened into a backfish quite the ingenue. Very charming, wonderfully well-read for my age, but incapable." Mrs. Wilcox would not be deterred. "'Come down with me to Howard's End now,' she said, more vehemently than ever. "'I want you to see it. You have never seen it. I want to hear what you say about it, for you do put things so wonderfully.' Margaret glanced at the pitiless air and then at the tired face of her companion. "'Later on I should love it,' she continued. "'But it's hardly the weather for such an expedition, and we ought to start when we're fresh. Isn't the house shut up, too?' She received no answer. Mrs. Wilcox appeared to be annoyed. "'Might I come some other day?' Mrs. Wilcox bent forward and tapped the glass. "'Back to Wickham Place, please.' was her order to the coachman. Margaret had been snubbed. "'A thousand thanks, Miss Schlegel, for all your help.' "'Not at all.' 
It is such a comfort to get the presents off my mind, the Christmas cards especially. I do admire your choice." It was her turn to receive no answer. In her turn Margaret became annoyed. "'My husband and Evie will be back the day after to-morrow. That is why I dragged you out shopping to-day. I stayed in town chiefly to shop, but got through nothing, and now he writes that they must cut their tour short. The weather is so bad, and the police traps have been so bad, nearly as bad as in Surrey. Ours is such a careful chauffeur, and my husband feels it particularly hard that they should be treated like road-hogs." "'Why?' "'Well, naturally, he—he he isn't a road-hog.' "'He was exceeding the speed-limit, I conclude. He must expect to suffer with the lower animals.' Mrs. Wilcox was silenced. In growing discomfort they drove homewards. The city seemed satanic, the narrower streets oppressing like the galleries of a mine. No harm was done by the fog to trade, for it lay high, and the lighted windows of the shops were thronged with customers. It was rather a darkening of the spirit which fell back upon itself, to find a more grievous darkness within. Margaret nearly spoke a dozen times, but something throttled her. She felt petty and awkward, and her meditations on Christmas grew more cynical. Peace? It may bring other gifts, but is there a single Londoner to whom Christmas is peaceful? The craving for excitement and for elaboration has ruined that blessing. Goodwill? Had she seen any example of it in the hordes of purchasers? Or in herself? She had failed to respond to this invitation merely because it was a little queer, and imaginative, she whose birthright it was to nourish imagination. Better to have accepted, to have tired themselves a little by the journey, than coldly to reply, "'Might I come some other day?' Her cynicism left her. There would be no other day. This shadowy woman would never ask her again. They parted at the mansions. Mrs. Wilcox went in after due civilities, and Margaret watched the tall, lonely figure sweep up the hall to the lift. As the glass doors closed on it, she had the sense of an imprisonment. The beautiful head disappeared first, still buried in the muff. The long, trailing skirt followed. A woman of undefinable rarity was going up heavenward, like a specimen in a bottle. And into what a heaven! A vault as of hell, sooty black, from which soots descended. At lunch her brother, seeing her inclined for silence, insisted on talking. Tibby was not ill-natured, but from babyhood something drove him to do the unwelcome and the unexpected. Now he gave her a long account of the day-school that he sometimes patronized. The account was interesting, and she had often pressed him for it before, but she could not attend now, for her mind was focused on the invisible. She discerned that Mrs. Wilcox, though a loving wife and mother, had only one passion in life—her house, and that the moment was solemn when she invited a friend to share this passion with her. To answer, another day, was to answer as a fool. Another day will do for brick and mortar, but not for the holy of holies into which Howard's End had been transfigured. Her own curiosity was slight. She had heard more than enough about it in the summer. 
the nine windows, the vine, and the witch-elm, had no pleasant connections for her, and she would have preferred to spend the afternoon at a concert. But imagination triumphed. While her brother held forth, she determined to go, at whatever cost, and to compel Mrs. Wilcox to go, too. When lunch was over, she stepped over to the flats. Mrs. Wilcox had just gone away for the night. Margaret said that it was of no consequence, hurried downstairs, and took a hansom to King's Cross. She was convinced that the escapade was important, though it would have puzzled her to say why. There was a question of imprisonment and escape, and though she did not know the time of the train, she strained her eyes for the St. Pancras's clock. Then the clock of King's Cross swung into sight, a second moon in that infernal sky, and her cab drew up at the station. There was a train for Hilton in five minutes. She took a ticket, asking in her agitation for a single. As she did so, a grave and happy voice saluted her and thanked her. "'I will come, if I still may,' said Margaret, laughing nervously. "'You are coming to sleep, dear, too. It is in the morning that my house is most beautiful. You are coming to stop. I cannot show you my meadow properly except at sunrise. These fogs—' she pointed at the station roof. Never spread far. I dare say they are sitting in the sun in Hertfordshire, and you will never repent joining them. I shall never repent joining you. It is the same. They began the walk up the long platform. Far at its end stood the train, breasting the darkness without. They never reached it. Before imagination could triumph, there were cries of, "'Mother! Mother!' And a heavy-browed girl darted out of the cloak-room and seized Mrs. Wilcox by the arm. "'Evie!' she gasped. "'Evie, my pet!' The girl called, "'Father! I say, look who's here!' "'Evie, dearest girl, why aren't you in Yorkshire?' "'No, motor-smash! Change plans! Father's coming!' "'Why, Ruth!' cried Mr. Wilcox, joining them. "'What in the name of all that's wonderful are you doing here, Ruth?' Mrs. Wilcox had recovered herself. "'Oh, Henry, dear, here's a lovely surprise. But let me introduce—but I think you know Miss Schlegel.' "'Oh, yes,' he replied, not greatly interested. "'But how's yourself, Ruth?' "'Fit as a fiddle,' she answered gaily. "'So were we, and so was our car, which ran A1 as far as Ripon.' But they're a wretched horse and cart, which a fool of a driver. Miss Schlegel, our little outing must be for another day. I was saying that this fool of a driver, as the policeman himself admits. Another day, Mrs. Wilcox, of course. But as we've insured against third-party risks, it won't so much matter. Cart and car being practically at right angles. The voices of the happy family rose high. Margaret was left alone. No one wanted her. Mrs. Wilcox walked out of King's Cross between her husband and her daughter, listening to both of them. End of chapter 10